What's up, brother? And welcome to the Becoming Kings podcast. I'm Johnny King, and I'm a life enthusiast, growth mentor, and men's lifestyle fulfillment coach. I've dedicated my life to helping men who feel like they're just not living up to their full potential to level up and become the king of their kingdoms. So whether you've been feeling stuck or numb or extremely angry with not living up to your greatest potential in any area of your life, then I'll be in your ears every week dropping some truly transformative episodes to help you become a man that you're proud to be. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. What's up, everybody? It's Johnny King, another episode of the Becoming Kings podcast. I've got in the house Robert Radnotti. Hey, man, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Good. And and you were telling me you're originally from Hungary, right? My parents are. Your parents and, are. Yeah, my parents came out during the revolution in 56, but I was actually born here. That's right. So they, they uh, immigrated over here and they would pronounce it how? Your last name? Radnotti. You got to roll the R. Radnoti. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, you've got such an amazing story that I was like, I had to bring you on and, and just talk about all the, the ways that you've pivoted through life, which I think is um, something that I feel like a lot of guys can, can uh, resonate with because they're, you know, maybe they're 20 years, your junior, but like struggling, like, oh, I don't know. And you've been there and you've done that and you've had uh, an illustrious career, but you've done such a wide array of, of things which is so cool, right? From ExxonMobil to being a running coach to uh, hypnotism, you know, and everything else that we'll get into. But anyways, I want to thank you for being here. It's really just an honor to, to have you on. And to It's a pleasure and honor for me. Yeah, I'm excited. So why don't we, uh, I mean, again, just, it's just easy to kind of start off with your, your story and kind of give the guys a little bit more of your background. Um, but you being kind of now a, a life coach and strategist, um, helping clients and athletes and business organizations to improve their performance. I think guys in general, which this is a, a, a podcast for guys, even though I know women certainly listen to this too, which is cool. Um, tell a little bit more about where you started and kind of how you moved, like I said, all the way through uh, ExxonMobil and, or, or even just what life was like when your parents came over here during the Hungarian revolution and, English being your second language. Let's talk about just however far you want to go back. So I'm sure we'll okay. talk for hours, but. Well, well, I, I could talk a long time. So you just stop me when I have, but my okay. parents came over during the revolution in 56 and they came specifically for a better life for their kids, their unborn kids. Cause we weren't born yet. My sister yeah. and I, yeah. and you know, in Hungary, it was a communist country back then, probably some of your younger, um, you know, listeners don't even know that there was an Eastern Bloc, the Cold War. And literally, uh, they had almost little chance of owning a home ever. And so they'd have to live with one set of the parents or the other, because that's the way it worked. You had to have someone older die, and then you inherit their place. They didn't build new things. It was obviously a very poor country that was, um, you know, dictated by the Russians. And there was a lot of uh, secrecy and things like that. But my parents grew up, they went through puberty at World War II. Mm-hmm. And my grandparents went through puberty at World War One. And I'll talk about that later. I'll come back to it because mm-hmm. there's an important thing that happens around puberty that impacts generationally. Interesting. And it's something that I've been working to break 
generations going forward. Um, But when they, then they escaped during the revolution, they were caught by the Russians. They were put in jail three times. They escaped from jail. And the last time they were within two miles of the Austrian border, my dad wanted to turn around and go back to Budapest. But my mom said she's going with or without them. And they agreed to try one last time. That time they crossed the border into Austria. They weren't sure because there was, there was soldiers on that side and they weren't sure if they were Austrians or the Russians. Uh, but fortunately, they were Austrians. And then the Austrians didn't know what to do with these Hungarians that were coming across. I think there were 10 to 20,000 um, Hungarians that escaped during that revolution. And so they put them in former concentration camps. And that's where they lived for six months until they got Jeez. passage to the United States. And my folks were actually on the very first boat <laughs> that was coming from Europe to the United States. And unfortunately, or part of the story was that they, um, uh, the Americans, for propaganda reasons, they slowed the boat down in December so that it would arrive strategically on January 1st, and they'd make a big deal of this thing. Well, the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of the wintertime is very rough. And um, everyone started getting sick and seasick. And my dad was actually a a champion accordion player. He was 25 years old then, and he could play the piano. Mm -hmm. And they had a piano aboard with 5,000 refugees. And so he started playing the piano to entertain the people on board. And somehow, and I don't know the story, but the New York Times found out about this. And I don't know if it's Morse code back then, or, you know, they obviously didn't have the internet or, or however it worked, yeah. but the New York Times found out about young Thomas Radnoti, and they wrote a little story about how he was entertaining the refugees on the way over. And mm. back in those days when everyone read the newspapers and every word of it, they had a long lost uncle that was in New York that read the article, came down to the dock when they came in there and found them from amongst 5,000 people coming in and took them home with them. But um, wow. he was a hat maker and hat makers didn't make enough money. So they, uh, um, there was a, a, another long lost uncle that owned the uh, hair salon at the Sahara Hotel back when the Sahara Hotel was kind of it. Um, in fact, that long lost uncle was the one that painted Elvis's hair black weekly. Elvis didn't have naturally black hair. It was painted weekly. Hmm. Um, so anyway, they put them on a train. They didn't speak English. They put them on a train from New York to Las Vegas. And that's where I was born in Las Vegas. Wow. What a, a what a long train ride that must have been, you know, yeah. after they've already gone all across the across the Atlantic and and what a story. How how do you feel like their experience having, you know, gotten out during the Hungarian Revolution, make that crossing, do all the the hardships that you know, I almost can't fathom me or my generation going through that. How did that affect them and then conversely impact your upbringing as well? Well, and that's a really good question because it has a huge impact. That's why I went back all that way because my dad came from a Jewish family and my mom came from a Christian family. Mm. And, you know, the Russians didn't allow any kind of religion at that point. And Mm. so for them to get together, um, one of the things they did, they just disavowed any kind of religion because they were, they had fear in the United States. There'd be the similar kind of persecutions Mm. that there were, that they were used to (laughs) in their country. And there was great fear because the Hungarians also had a secret 
police, I forget what it's called now, but that they would encourage people, family members to tell on each other. And so you're very secretive, you're very close, you're very afraid. Mm -hmm. So even growing up in Las Vegas, I wasn't allowed to go out of our yard. I wasn't allowed to play with the kids across the street because there was just a fear. And so, you know, I grew up in this very closed kind of don't talk too much, don't share too much, don't raise your hand. You know, mm-hmm. quite truly, I have a hard time in class raising my hand to ask a question. And it's plagued me to today. I've had to work really hard through personal development courses like Tony Robbins, Joe Dispenza, Les Brown, Brendan Bouchard to break through that. But it's still deep in my subconscious and it impacts me to this day, even Mm. though I've done incredible amount of work. Mm. That fear that they were having, obviously, they kind of stilled in you just that you you can't uh, trust right? Well, I'm not sure that's the piece I got out of it. What I got out of it, I think is more of a rebellious nature Mm. in not a, an outwardly way, but just when I see injustices Mm -hmm. or when I think something is just not right, not fair, I will strategically do things to change that, whether it's for myself, my family, my community, my team, my nation, I'm, I'm kind of doing that kind of stuff. And it probably has led me on my career path. Probably. Yeah, probably. You've, uh, that, that rebel in you has allowed you to be entrepreneurial probably in different ways. Right. And, and I, in like, what I've always wanted to do is just help the little guy. My mom always told my dad that, and there's, Mm. there's, they were sort of the, the American success story. My dad came here and immediately he got a job in a titanium plant um, and as a box boy at the grocery store, probably listeners don't know that, but the, at, after you check out from the grocery store, there would be a boy there who would um, put your, um, your merchandise into bags and they would walk it out to the um, stores for the old ladies. And they used to tip my dad a dime. And my dad would bring home his dimes and my mom had this jar and they collected the dimes in the jar until they had $500 to buy, that was the down payment on their first house in Las Vegas. It was all from dimes that he collected as being the box boy in the Las Vegas uh, grocery store. Wow. You say 500 bucks. I was like, back then, that had to have been a lot of money, actually. It's a lot of dimes. Yeah, it's a lot of dimes. That's 5,000 dimes. (laughs) That's a lot of uh, trips out to people's vehicles or whatever. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. But you grew up uh, speaking Hungarian as your primary language correct yeah my parents didn't want me to learn english from them because they started learning when they got here well my mom did right away but my dad had to because he went to work my mom was a maid in that uncle's family and they just spoke hungarian too so Mm. she didn't learn for about five years Mm. they didn't want me to have an accent so my kindergarten teacher taught me english Mm. did you did that impact i mean what was that like as you were you know obviously you're american born <laughs> and yet uh influenced by your hungarian uh, just you know ancestry if you will your parents how have you found that that's been something that maybe has given you a, a unique outlook on life between ha- just having that balance between you know us your hungarian background just the, well, the I, learnings I think of all that the other things nowadays a lot of people have that you mm-hmm. know we have a lot of immigrants the united states is filled with immigrants so mm-hmm. i can perhaps relate to others although you know i'm a white guy and there's white you know kind of populace and say um 
the Hispanic community maybe feels differently. So maybe I can't relate to them. But the impact to me growing up was kind of interesting because I was put in the slow reading group. Mm. Um, you know, back, you know, they used to categorize it. I remember I was one of the bluebirds that couldn't read very fast. Mm. And because of that, I didn't read much. I was really good in math in science and things like that, but I was always behind in English and in reading. And consequently, I didn't read books except for sports book, you know, the baseball life of Mickey Mantle or Johnny Nidus or someone like that. And literally in high school, I had to read some of those books and I was so slow. And one of the things that happened to me was about my second or third year working for Exxon. Um, Exxon's actually a really great company with personal development and, and, and things like that. They offered an Evelyn Woods speed reading course, a three-day program. And I went to it and I didn't like the program. It was, you would work, look at phrases. You didn't look at words. And at the end of it, they'd say, you get about 80% of the meeting. And so I didn't really care for it, but something snapped in my mind. And all of a sudden I became a fast reader. Hmm. And one of the things that that did for me is I started reading and really enjoying it. And then I got into the personal development world and leadership and quality and things like that. And literally I read at least a book a week now. Hmm. And, you know, if you, if you listen to some of the, 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 the folks that are doing amazing things, they all say, you got to read, you got to read, mm-hmm. read a lot, keep reading and reading and reading. And certainly I've adopted that trait. Mm. Um, and I attribute it to that speed reading course. That's cool. That's really cool. I wonder, I wonder what actually clicked for you. But, uh, you know, it's all in your subconscious now, you know, and we haven't gotten to it yet, but, you know, just a few years ago, I became a hypnotherapist and I started learning about the science of the mind, neuroscience. And, and now I heard a word yesterday, neuroplasticity. That's what I really am, a neuroplastician. Mm-hmm. But that your subconscious is where everything is programmed. And by the time you're in your mid 30s, 95% of all your thoughts, your behaviors, beliefs, and even emotions are programmed into your body. So you've only got about 5% of your conscious mind is trying to overcome that 95% that's programmed into your body. So when we talk about personal development, it is a hardware issue. You've got neuro connections, you've got neurosynapses, you've got biology, neurocircuitry, neurochemistry, hormones, and even genetic expression that is fixed by the way you were raised up to about puberty. Mm. And it's just tremendous learning the science about it. I've gotten into involved with Joe Dispenza now, and I'm, I'm one of his corporate trainers now, and he's really big into the science of it and teaching you how to now change who you are. If you want to change your life, if you want to change your personal reality, the only way to do it is to change your personality. Mm-hmm. And your personality consists of your thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. Mm-hmm. And people want to change their life without changing who they are. And they can't do it. The only way to do it is to actually change who you are. Mm-hmm. It's like incredible. It it's is. Neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good That's, word, isn't it? it? It really is. And I think we can, we can circle back around to that because those that have you know, listen to the show, know that I've been to a couple of different week long retreats and just getting more and more, especially this past year into meditation. And I've been pushing it, pushing it. I've been recommending it more and more, you know? Um, but I think it's fascinating because I remember you telling me that you, you know, growing up in Vegas, you were 
you know, delivering newspapers and washing dishes and you were a cook, but then you all the way to what you've done later on in life, how did you make the leap from going from blue collar, you know, probably similar to how things were at, at home and seeing your parents work to getting a higher education? Maybe you can fill in that gap a little bit uh, where you went to University of Colorado and you got your chemical engineering degree and MBA from UCLA. Fill, fill in some of those gaps, if you don't mind, because that's kind of cool how you went from that's, that's a whole mindset shift going from blue collar to, you know. Well, I don't know if it's really blue collar. I was a kid. Yeah. And I started at 10 years old delivering newspapers when people delivered newspapers. Yeah. And unfortunately, all the kids in the neighborhood got the close route. So by the time my parents okayed me getting a newspaper route at 10 years old, I had to take my bicycle three miles away to deliver papers. Yeah. And I started with 50 papers. And by the time I finished at 15, I was delivering 300 newspapers at four o'clock in the morning Jeez. Um, before school started. Because mm. um, we had Las Vegas was grown so big and they started busing when I was in fifth grade. And um, by the time I was in, in middle school and high school, um, they had to have split split sessions. So I had to go to school at like seven in the morning till like noon or so mm. and had to deliver my papers at four in the morning. And uh, but it was because I was a kid, you know, it, I, I don't know if that's really blue collar. I was good I, in math. I was good in math, so yeah. I went to the University of Colorado to run track, to run cross country. I it just never occurred to me that I wouldn't be an Olympic champion. I think and, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I had no interest whatsoever in chemical engineering. <laughs> I it, it was literally I walked out. I went to Colorado. I started out as a biology major because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I literally couldn't stay awake my freshman year during uh, fall semester. So I walked over to the engineering building. And I said, I think I want to try engineering. They said, well, which, which um, discipline? And I said, well, I don't really know. I said, which one's the hardest? And they said, chemical. I said, okay, sign me up. That's how I became a chemical engineer. I That's had cool. little interest in it. And then when it came time to uh, find a job, Exxon, at that time, they were either number one or number two in the Fortune 500. And they flew first class. They wined and dined just when oil prices were going crazy. And I remember on my recruiting trip, um, I had a, my host was this beautiful girl, you know, a few years older than me. She was on one of the Exxon commercials and she took me to Beverly Hills with another, they spent like $200 back at that time on dinner. And they just whined and dined me and go, I want to work for this company. But again, I had no interest in chemical engineering. And I truthfully, I wasn't a great chemical engineer, but what I was, I found good at was solving the problems that weren't engineering problems. Mm the human um, portion of problems. Mm. So for example, at one point we wanted to get a permit in Santa Barbara County for um, two new oil platforms and an onshore treating facility. Santa Barbara is kind of like one of the places that really don't like oil. I mean, get oil out, goo is there and the Environmental Defense Center and the Sierra Club, all these people are headquarters there and they just hate Exxon. Mm. You know, I was just a young kid. And I was assigned to try to get the air permit because that's the one that had stalled Exxon for 25 years in getting this project. It was a $3 billion project. And I got in there and the first thing I did, went to the air pollution control district and said, hey, you know, we ought to have a volleyball game. And they just kind of looked at me and I became friends with them and, and, you know, I probably shouldn't say very much, but I... 
I uh, worked out so that we got our permit after 25 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that part. I'm not a good engineer, but I still have an engineering mind. Well, it's interesting. You said you were really good at math, correct? Yeah. You're really good at math. And yet you're also, which, which you would think, okay, those people are going to be more of the analyzers, more of the, the technicians. Yeah. The, and yet you're also saying you're really good at the people. It seems like you've got a good balance of. I wasn't good at the people part when I first started. I mean, yeah. I couldn't talk to people. Oh. That was something that developed over time. And again, one of the things that was great about Exxon is they developed people. So mm. one of my very first um, personal development program was called Investment in Excellence by a guy named Lou Tice. In fact, that program, I think, was adopted by Pete Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks a few years ago. I'm sure they've done other things, but that's where Lou was involved. And he taught this affirmation process that was just amazing to me, coming with my engineering mind. Mm -hmm. And what they had us do was develop affirmations, but they were really interesting. I've never seen this anyplace else because a lot of affirmations that people teach affirmations are just like, I am courage, I am love, I am whatever. And that they leave it at that. They taught this three-part affirmation process, which was because I've done something, I created this and I feel this. And that to me is really, really powerful. So I wrote, you you had to write them on these three by five cards. Yep. And I did 57 of them during this six-day program. And they were way out there, including one that was because of my knowledge an interest in track and field. I am a division one college head coach of men's and women's cross country and track and field teams. And that makes me feel like I've actually contributed to the young people growing up in America or something like that. Mm-hmm. Even that one came true. And I had no business writing that as a 25 year old <laughs> kid working right. for Exxon. Yeah. Last year, I finally accomplished my 57th one. I accomplished every single one of those affirmations that I did through the Investment in Excellence program. And I credit it to that three-step affirmation process. Mm. And that was sort of the beginning of the way my mind started thinking and, and changing probably to a growth mindset, to a growing mindset, to a contributing mindset, to a connecting mindset, to a significant mindset, to an uncertainty mindset. I've just gone through five of the six human needs that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. And life became much more interesting. Mm. Would you go through those daily and flip through those 57 yeah, cards? The affirmations, they had you read it visualize it and feel it experience it yeah when you first come wake up in the morning and right before going to sleep all 57 yeah how long would that take you oh you could go fast after well i don't know how long took five minutes ten minutes it didn't time is suspended when you're doing what you really love to do right amen yep you just don't notice it. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't tell you how long I spent on it other than it was really important to me because I wrote some really hairy goals. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know anyone that moved from becoming a, I didn't, I didn't become an assistant coach. I became the head coach from moving from Exxon to the head coach of Pepperdine University. Oops, crazy. I forgot that. I, I became a high school coach first, but the head coach 
of a team with almost 300 track athletes on it. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's really cool. I mean, I feel like, again, it's, uh, yeah, it's like you, I don't know if, I mean, I can certainly hear, you know, talk to my father and, and some, some older generations, you know, going back to, to what you're talking about with the, the newspaper routes still though, to be a, a youngster, to be getting up and having and creating that work ethic is powerful when you were well, a little that guy. came from my, my, my parents. Yeah. I mean, you know, when they came here, you don't have any money. You got to yeah. eat. Yeah. You gotta You've work your got to off. eat. <laughs> and you know, my dad was hustling. My mom was a maid. They worked really, really hard. Mm. And you watch that mm-hmm. and you do the same thing. I couldn't mm-hmm. wait to start working. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to get that newspaper route. That's cool. I really wanted, and I had some bad, bad, growing up in Las Vegas is a tough place. There yeah. was, there's only 25,000 people in town now, not 2 million like there are now. Yeah. And so I remember riding my bike in the dark and a, a car following me all of a sudden. And as it started getting closer, I ditched my bike into the desert and took off running. Um, there were some, you know, tough things. And you had to go collect $3, you know, once a month. That's the way you got paid. You had to, I had to drive, I mean, ride my bicycle three miles and knock on everyone's door, hope that they're home and say, collecting review journal is $3 for the month and hope that they have $3 to give you. Crazy. And then you paid $1.75 of that to the newspaper. So you got to keep $1.25 for a month's worth of work per person. And you're happy if you got them. And, you know, yeah, I had to probably go back five, 10 times to get everyone to, to be able to collect. Dude, that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. I mean, that's, that's hard work as, as well. And, and no wonder that when you're given a chance or a choice of, well, what, what type of degree do you want? You're like, what's the hardest? You're, you're just, you have that work ethic ingrained in you. And, right? and I don't know why I even did that. Cause it was kind of dumb to do, but and, and it just, again, it just popped into my head. I didn't think about it when they just asked me which discipline. I go, I don't know, which one's the hardest? Yeah. That's not what normal people do. Um, although I think, uh, well, I shouldn't even say that. But, um, you know, it, and it took, I think, two or three months. But I saved up $200 for my newspaper route. Yeah. And then I talked my dad into, and I don't know where this came from either, because it didn't come from my dad. I talked him into buying um, shares of AMF stock for me. I bought $200 worth of uh, AMF stock. AMF was the, because um, I went, as kids, we went to the bowling alley and there was yep. AMF on there. And I must have learned it in school, something about stocks or whatever. It's not, you know, it was not easy to buy stocks in those days. My dad had to figure it out. There was a neighbor that was a stock broker. You had to go to professional stock brokers and he bought me, you know, 200 shares of AMS stock. And I was so excited. Uh, the next month it went up to 400. So I made $200. Wow. And my dad thought that's kind of cool too. <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, that's, that's, that, that is pretty amazing. And, and I think you're right though. I don't think the average person when given the choice, I mean, knowing what we know about Tony Robbins, we will go towards what's comfortable, certain, um, you know, and, and again, I think it just comes from your, your upbringing and your parents and the, the lifestyle. And it's, it's benefited you, I think, in the long run, for sure. For sure. But if, if and I've thought about this a lot because I'm so appreciative of what they did because literally mm-hmm. they gave up everything. everything, their country, their culture, their parents. They only saw their parents 
once or twice or maybe three times again in their entire life. I cannot believe it. And they were only 25 years old Mm. and they liked their parents. They loved their parents. They, but they risked everything. And I think that that's something that's ingrained into my subconscious because I risk. I, when I quit Exxon after 18 years of working for them, Without a severance package, I just quit to become the head track and field and cross country coach at Thousand Oaks High School because mm. I went out for a long run on a Sunday and read an article in the newspaper that the longtime coach had retired, mm. resigned. And I go, that's what I really want to do. And I called mm. them up and I got the job. And then I told <laughs> Exxon and they said, you're out of your mind. Yeah, you're, you're not going to really do that. They paid $2,000 a year. Mm. And I had a big house, a wife and two kids. And my wife didn't work, um, but here's the, the but, because there's always risk. People go like, why'd you do that? Um, I was day trading at that time. Mm-hmm. And I would just, it was during the dot-com run-up. And I thought it would last forever. And my wife and I would listen to the news in the morning, six or seven o'clock in the morning. They'd say, you know, Amazon's going to go up. Dell's, I only looked at like 10 stocks, like Intel, IBM, or not IBM, uh, Microsoft, Apple. And yep. I would place the order in the morning and then we'd sell in the afternoon. I remember there was one day where Amazon went up $26 per share in one day. Wow. And so I was making more money day trading than I was at Exxon. And I was pretty paid pretty well at Exxon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason I went to Exxon. They paid the most money. <laughs> and uh, so I had false confidence mm-hmm. that that would last forever. And it lasted only six months. And I could have been in big trouble, except that sometimes just things happen for a reason, right? Everything's always happened. for The day after my last day at Exxon, a rival oil company called me up and it's kind of a long story, but essentially they, they, they gave me a job. They offered me a job to be a consultant to them and they had tripled my salary and I only had to work six hours a day. And we were so far advanced at Exxon to what they were doing that they thought I was like a rocket scientist and it was just simple stuff. I didn't even have to think very much. I didn't have to use much brain power. I could do that. And really in the back of my mind, I'm figuring out how am I going to maximize the points to the next track meet so we could win every single race that we are in. Mm, mm. That's the way my mind works. No, it's so cool. It's so cool. And, and so you, you really, well, let's talk about the, the decision to leave Exxon and go towards, you know, uh, coaching, if you will, what was it about? Cause that's that people are like, Oh, you're crazy. Cause you live, you're giving up certainty. You're giving up the, the, the achievement yep. for like we've talked about before the fulfillment, right? What was it that, what, what was part of your, you know, decision process that well, kind of I drove think, that decision? I think depending on the age of your audience, some people might know this, some people might, you know, in your mid to late thirties, maybe into your forties, men go through what's called the tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know, some people um, call it midlife crisis. Um, you know, in in our world with Alison Armstrong, she talks about it as the tunnel, and mm-hmm. that's about a six month period where you start questioning. Um, you know, where am I in life? Am I doing enough? Am I where I need to be? All those kinds of things. And I was at that stage where I wasn't sure what I want. I didn't really ever want to be an engineer. I didn't want to work for Exxon. The only reason I did is they, they wind and dine me and, uh, you know, I went to work for them and I wasn't really very satisfied. It became a game to me. Mm. 
but it wasn't very satisfying. And by that time, I actually had uh, founded a, a nonprofit corporation called the United States Corporate Athletics Association. Hmm. And it was a, a corporation to put on track meets between corporations. And it took over from something that Bob Anderson at Runner's World had founded, which was called the Corporate Cup Relays. And um, um, after a few years, this thing became a pretty big deal. It was, yep. there were like 10,000 people there. There were 107 companies. It was at Stanford Stadium when they had their track inside their stadium. And it was kind of a big deal. And uh, um, after a few years, Bob Anderson was going through a divorce and had to sell Runner's World magazine. He mm. sold to Rodale Press. They didn't want the Corporate Cup relays, but I stepped forward and created this nonprofit corporation to keep the Corporate Cup relays going again. And my house became the national headquarters. I was elected chairman of the board for 17 years and put on five of the world championships, wow. syndicated the television rights a couple of times, published two national magazines. It's what I really was passionate about. So when this little article on a Sunday morning before a long run came and said that the Thousand Oaks track coach was resigning, I said, that's what I really want to do. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I really love doing. And when I got back, my, my wife, now ex-wife, she said, I read that same article. You should just go for it. So I had a supportive spouse and I had a false sense of financial um, stability. <laughs> right, right. It was really false. My dad yeah. thought it was insane. Remember, they came to the United States for us to have a better life. He was really proud of me being an engineer. And then all of a sudden I quit to become a track coach. That yeah. doesn't translate too well. <laughs> uh, but I did it and things turned out really, really well. Although there was yeah. some interesting stories there too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's, there's, there. Yeah. Is I think you've got to follow your dreams. You've got to create dreams. You've got to dream first of all, because otherwise you just go through life and nothing changes. Nothing happens. There's no excitement. There's no fulfillment unless you go find it, unless you seek it, unless you write an affirmation. Mm -hmm. Or go to, you know, one of these seminars that cost thousands of dollars or just do something, read a book. But if you're in that tunnel, go do something about it mm. or reach out to an elder person like myself. Say, how do I do this? Yeah. It requires a level of, of uh, obviously of commitment, right? Yeah. It's like we all have dreams, but those that actually turn those dreams into reality, such as yourself, are, are like, man, they're. They've got that pig-headed discipline to, to really commit and take yeah, the big risks, you know? At my level, which isn't, you know, a great level. You could look at, like, the founder of Amazon Bezos or, you know, some of these Richard Branson and, and those people. They did it to, a, you know, a degree like this. Right. So everyone's got to figure out what their degrees and what their fulfillment really is. I don't right. think I wanted to do that. Yeah. That's not what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to win an NCAA championship yeah. and I thought I had the right process. And then I get to a place where there's no funding, there's no scholarships and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And it didn't work out. Mm. And then I had to pivot again. Mm -hmm. Had to pivot again. Had to humble yourself to, to make a move. I, I think it's, I think I, I, I mean, I really appreciate your story because it's, it's, it's inspiring, but it's also humbling because I know too on, on another in other respects from what you've told me offline and that sort of thing, you, you've gone through on your family side of things, real life, same. I mean, you've gone through, you just mentioned divorce. Uh, I think you mentioned suicides or bipolar. Um, 
depression, addictions, alcohol, like there's been a lot of stuff in there. So it's not just all roses, right? It's easy to kind of go over and look at all the highlights, right? For sure. For sure. One of the things that I'm learning in the Joe Dispenza world is that when you're going toward your dream, your goals, and, and, and you're going into ministry, you have to become greater than your environment, greater than your body, and your body being what's programmed into your body, and greater than time. And we mostly don't know how to do that. I kind of lucked into it, quite truthfully. You know, I read the right things or you know, went to the right books or talked to the right people that gave me that confidence, albeit maybe false. But right. I've always had this feeling that life was always happening for me, mm. not to me. I've always really felt that way. And that just whatever direction I went, it was going to be the right direction. Somehow it was going to turn out good. Well, I think too, when you, when you compare it to, a lot of times I feel like we get, we get scared of what we're going to lose out on, you know, and it's better yeah. to stay comfortable. But when you kind of, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just kind of throwing words in your mouth to some degree. Like you see what your parents went from, like you said, giving up relationships with their mom and dad, giving up their homeland, giving up, like, shoot, you're like, well, that's, that's where it could, where you could be, you know? So you might as well reach for the stars and go for it, you know, because yeah. it's, it's all relative. Right. Yeah, so. and, and, and even I remember seeing the first letter that my mom got from her mother, hmm. you know, there was no internet there. There wasn't phone where you can call them. And the letter had words that were either cut out or blacked out, you know, because sensors would read the letter before it could be sent to the United States. And it would mm. take months to get something. Oh, geez. And so when she would respond, it would be the same way. The censors in Hungary would get the letter and cut it up and, and mark on before it mm. got delivered to her mother. So they didn't really have hardly any kind of communication at all. <laughs> I think my mom saw her mother one time after she left. And that was it before wow. she, she died. It's tough. That's tough to imagine. Yeah. Hmm. Especially yeah. when they have a good, and, when they have a good one of the things that I'm doing, and, and maybe this is a good idea for some of your listeners is I'm actually just finishing up a book about uh, my parents' life and, and how they came here and, and what they had to go through. Cool. And it's been a five year undertaking. Um, and I, I, I wrote it for my kids and my sister's kids and mm. whoever comes after them. Um, but what I started doing when my dad died, I started taking my mom back to Hungary, thinking she'd actually like to go see the relatives. Turns out she didn't really want to anymore. She stopped after a few years. But on these trips, I took a, uh, 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 recording device and I would record the stories. I'd say, mom, you know, cool. what happened here? What happened here? Tell me about this. How did you meet dad? Um, you know, where did you work? The car factory. She had to go to work in a car factory when she was 14. That was two hours away. Her dad and her took a train two hours at 4 a.m. Wow. To work in a car factory that the Russians controlled. Hmm. And she did that for six years. And they would take the train back at 6 p.m. and get home at 8 p.m. and do it again the next day. Our kids, my kids... I can't even imagine that. I have my story about it being a newspaper route. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, 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 and bad guys chasing me into the desert. That's like nothing compared to Russians shooting at you. Yeah, you're telling me. And that you're, you're trying to escape in October, November when the, the lands are frozen and you slip into the river and your leg becomes frozen. And you still have to keep going miles that day still. Mm. We have no idea what what our what, whenever our relatives came over, you know, some of the you know the relatives came over four hundred years ago, or two hundred years ago, or fifty years ago, or last year. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I really get concerned about, like even thinking about the people from the Middle East, you know, it's a generational issue mm-hmm. that typically I've read last seven generations the atrocities of war and dictators and things like that it's hard to get out of you yeah yeah like ptsd kind of seven generations if that's really true then the world of personal development really has to evolve and to attract those kind of people maybe a whole educational society has to change Mm -hmm. in order for really to help people find you know, some joy, fulfillment, not just survival. Right. It's funny you say that because I've said it before on other podcast um, episodes, even by myself, sometimes when I'm doing solo episodes, which is like, man, this is just the right time that we have the bandwidth to be able to go into and start uh, unlearning or, or disconnecting those soul ties from past generations, whether it be shame or just the trauma, because so many of those past generations we're going through so much stuff that we in our right minds would, would probably go to alcohol or like, gosh, so yeah. difficult, you know? So it's kind of our responsibility to, you know, to, to, to use technology to give us the, the freedom and the time. Like yeah. you said, you were over in Europe doing some NLP stuff. It's, it's, it's like, so that we can leave the future generations better off, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it's pretty powerful. Let's, let's, let's shift that the conversation in the sense of like, talking about what you're doing now because what you're doing now is pretty really really cool with all the work that you're doing and all the stuff like you said all the stuff you've done with Alison Armstrong and Joe Dispenza and Tony Robbins and man like the the list goes on and on of of really pouring into yourself so that you can now pour into the world Mm -hmm. tell tell a little more about what you're up to and all the exciting things you got going on well um one of the things in my my last uh, year or so at Pepperdine University I've left them now because mm-hmm. they made it clear that we are not going to build a national championship caliber program and I really wanted to win badly mm-hmm. um but I I um, went to hypnotherapy school at literally the world's foremost hypnotherapy school Joe Dispenza graduated from there Marissa Peer who's UK's premier hypnotherapist graduated from there it's the only accredited college in the world I believe for hypnotherapy it was a year and a half program so it's not like a workshop you know weekend kind of thing to kind of thing that a lot of people go do not that there's anything bad with that for all my friends out there that that's what they've done but I did go through an 18-month program with a very intensive internship and the intent was to hypnotize my athletes um, so that I could help them run faster so I could break through those mental barriers because I wanted to beat UCLA and UCLA is recruiting the top <laughs> high school runners in the nation and I couldn't do that without yeah. scholarships yeah. and a $75,000 price tag per year um, and and I think I've told you this story that my very first uh, meet that we went to was up in San Luis Obispo and I had six brave guys on our athletes, no girls volunteered, but six guys volunteered to allow me to hypnotize them. And the strategy that we used 
back then, it was the arm raising technique. And it's one where you have the person put their arm on a, uh, a desk and you start talking to them and their arm starts raising and you tell them you can't do anything about it. your arm starts raising and there it raises takes like 10 15 minutes it raises all the way up to here and then you hit them in the forehead and you go deep sleep and they're like out it like amazes me that it works uh, mm. it's i've probably done it 100 times 99 out of 100 times everyone's arms go up it's like crazy. the craziest thing i don't use that yeah. technique any longer but that's the first technique that yeah. they taught us so i hypnotized these six guys and they all set huge personal records the next day and i'm so excited about it the monday i went in and the athletic director called me in and said i heard what you did on uh, you know friday saturday and i thought oh man he's gonna be really excited about this uh, first time like the whole time i shouldn't yeah. say that either but yeah. he didn't he said you know, you can't do that. And I said, what? He said, we are a Christian university mm. and you are playing God. Mm -hmm. As soon as he said that, I kind of knew that he was right. And so I couldn't do that. But one of the great things was that I learned how many different areas I could actually help people mm. through hypnosis. There's, we've got a list of 146 different issues that people have that we can help people with. And it's just become so powerful. Wow. And I just get high helping people all across the world now because of Zoom. Yeah. I mean, I was hoping that one day I'd be good enough to do this over Skype because I hadn't heard of Zoom. And all of a sudden my internship's all on Zoom. And wow. I there was one day in my internship, and this was just a year and a half ago, that I had, I started a client in, um, um, in Belgium, then I had one in the UK, then Canada, then the US, then Mexico, then Australia and New Zealand, all in one day. Wow. And at the end of the day, I was just so excited because I'm working with people with depression and cancer and pains. And, and I even hypnotized a dog in Australia to stop barking. That was like so cool. And, uh, and it just seems to keep getting better and better. And, and now I'm taking that and I'm partnering actually um, with a, a pretty prominent hypnotherapist here in Malibu. And we're going to start uh, creating a program called the Malibu Method that we're going to start taking out there for bigger audiences. And then I've become a, a, a corporate trainer for Joe Dispenza through a company he started called NeuroChange Solutions, where we're teaching his program now. Um, based on his book, uh, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And it's mm -hmm. just so powerful. And what Joe teaches that I really like is he brings it back to science, to the brain, to statistics. And uh, you know, we've got these healings going on with people, which the healings include people all the way up to, to cancer. And we're mm -hmm. up to a 38% success rate with healings. And the healings are just putting energy into a person. And it's one thing to do it live. We're doing it via Zoom now remote mm. and we're up at 38% success rate. Once we hit 50%, there's four um, children's hospitals in Los Angeles that will allow us to go in and start working with kids with leukemia and cancer and things like that. And that's one of our goals. Cool. It is cool. so cool. That's really powerful. Yeah. Well, you answered my question. My next question was me. So, so what's the next the project was the next step of what you're working on. So you, you answered that for me, but it's pretty, pretty powerful. And the cool that you, again, like you said, with, with technology, you can do this from anywhere versus thinking you have to kind of, you know, have people write 
in your presence, right? I had a long time goal. Not sure I could do it yet, mm-hmm. but I have a long time goal to live in three or four places in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was over in Portugal. I signed up for this NLP class with John Grinder mm-hmm. um, in Portugal. Um, because Portugal and Croatia, those are the two countries in Europe that I could see myself living at. And it was just amazing. But I was doing hypnotherapy from there. And I do a group session at 2 a.m. because that was 6, 6 p.m. here in California. I just did it to a um, 2 a.m. Yeah. Um, it was okay because I was watching my Phoenix Suns play basketball, but then that's about when the, the games would started. And I was just having, I have so much fun doing it. I just have so much fun um, helping people like you do. You're sharing information and everyone out there, the, the thrill you get of helping a, another person, I guess maybe if your human need is contribution and or growth mm-hmm. and or connection, um, it just becomes pretty addictive and it creates fulfillment and joy and love and freedom and all sorts of cool things. I've never been happier in my entire life. Yeah. What, what I want to honor you in is like multiple times in your, in your life, you, you've been willing to give up the, the assurances of, you know, certainty for the, the, you know, un, uncertainty of potential fulfillment. Right. Yeah. Yep. But I can just, I can see it on your face. You are living a life of a, of a King in that sense where uh, so much of what this podcast is about, my book is about, it's about pursuing fulfillment because from that space of truly being, uh, you know, living a life of service to others, are we leaving a, a lasting legacy? That's, that's really worth anything. Otherwise, again, you can make a lot of money and you can leave it for past for next generations. And that's, that's great too. Totally. But there's so much more to, to offer the world when you are getting yourself out of your own way, your own limiting beliefs, and you're pouring into the hearts of others. And you're certainly doing that on a massive, massive scale, which is pretty cool. Everyone could define for themselves. Every man can define for themselves what a king looks like for them. 100%. It doesn't have to be around service. It could be, you know, flying to the moon yeah. or to space. That yeah. could be what a king does for you. Yeah, And so, you know, that's what I just encourage everyone to do is actually think about what does a king mean to you mm-hmm. and then create either the strategy and the story and the state mm. to actually move toward that mm. and don't stay stationary. Mm. Amen to that. Drop, drop the mic. <laughs> that's, that's, that's perfect. I mean, we can certainly keep on chatting. I know for, for hours, cause there's so many great stories in, in your career and throughout your life, but I want to thank you just in, for the sake of time and just pouring into the, to this podcast and, and sharing your, your heart and your love for what you do and for people. Um, I know there's a, so much to, to reflect upon and resonate with. So thank you for, for taking the time. It's truly my pleasure and such an honor to be with you, Johnny. And you know, the things that you do in spreading the message to our young men, our middle-aged men, our older men, <laughs> to step up, to step forward, to follow their dreams, to become the king that they were destined, mm-hmm. they were designed, they were created to be, mm-hmm. a powerful thing that you're doing. So I honor you and I thank you. Well, thank you very much. How, how would guys, if guys want to kind of, you know, test things out want to connect with you want to get more into what you're talking about whether we're talking about 
you know, anything with, with your story. Cause there's quite the breadth of things to talk about. How, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, I'm really easy to find. Someone told me a few years ago, I had 18 pages of Google searches. So um, I'm easy to find. I've got robertradnody.com. I've got Radnody hypnosis. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm all over the place. Okay. Cool. Cool. Easy you, enough, but, but I'm a red nutty. Yeah. Yeah. It's Which I'll put the spell my name. You just Google uh, Pepperdine coach. It probably still pops up there. Okay, perfect. Well, I'll put it in the show notes so people can hyperlink to your website and be in touch. But um, I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said about the, uh, the changes you can make through the kind of subconscious unconscious mind, you know, the more I get into, I'm like, wow. And, and, and to your point, and we could do a whole nother podcast just about Dr. Joe is, that the fact that he's backing it up with science to me is pretty fascinating. It, it's you know? incredible. Yeah. It's really, really cool. And, and it shows too, what you said with what you did with your athletes, you know, and what they were to do the next day, pretty cool stuff. Neuroplasticity. That's going to be the new word. <laughs> Neuroplasticity. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Robert so much. Thanks for uh, being on. Um, and you guys, if there's, you know, any thought to wanting to level up your life. Um, if you know there's things that uh, are getting in your way, but you don't know exactly what those things are, I think reaching out to Robert, just having a conversation, connecting him with him on email or <laughs> through TikTok or whatever would be really worth your time. So Robert, thank you again so much. Take fine. care, guys. Yeah, it was very fun. Take care, guys. We'll, uh, we'll catch up with you guys on the next episode of the Johnny... Uh, well, I'm Johnny King on the Becoming Kings podcast. Take care. That's it for this one, and I want to thank you for listening. Hey, if you got some good ideas from this episode and you want more, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast. And if you think others may benefit from it also, share it on social media and tag me in your post so I can say hey. It would also mean a lot to me if you felt inclined to write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts since I read every single one of them. And if you've got any questions or topics that you'd like to recommend, or really just anything that you think I could improve upon, man, I thrive on constructive feedback. So hit me up with an email at podcast at johnnyking.com. Oh, and feel free to also subscribe to my YouTube channel, connect with me on LinkedIn, and follow me on Instagram at johnnyking and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash johnnykingmenscoach. Thanks again for joining me. I'll catch you next time.